Hello and welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. This week's guest is Annie Lennox. Annie is a Scottish singer-songwriter, political activist and philanthropist. She's most well-known, of course, as the front woman of the Eurythmics. She's won four Grammys and has sold over 83 million albums worldwide. Annie has just released the 10th anniversary reissue of her album, A Christmas Cornucopia, that includes the single Dido's Lament. She is also absolutely Lovely. Right, here's some comments on the episode with Sad Guru that we did last week. Helen.goldring says, Helen.goldring, two of my favourite men in one place. I knew one day if I waited long enough, you two would get together. He hits you right in the unconscious. The other fave is Wim Hof, so I'm very happy. The three of you together are a superpower. The force has transformed my life for better at 67. I feel 40. Well, that's very nice, isn't it? Well done, Helen. Dot gold ring. You right, Jen? <laughs> Why are you doing that? Jingle? Four calling birds, three French hens, two. Is that what it was? Christmas. That, was that it? I thought it was like a, a gambling card or something. Okay. <laughs> no, I think you should check yourself into rehab. For what? I don't know. Whatever it is you've got, you've got to get off it. You've got to get off it, Jengo. Fried. Uh, Noel Fitzpatrick, super vet, who I love, he tells me that he really likes these bits where we talk to each other at the beginning. He's really nice to me. Well, <laughs> aggressively nice. He's so Irish at you. He's like you have an Irish off, isn't he? Didn't yeah. he headlock he you? He put me in a headlock. He'd only just met him. Ah, oh, the Irish. Fried A. Gormley says, loved it. The tree planting slash soil project gave me some much needed optimism. In fact, my friend Dan, who I chat with, who also listens to the podcast, he said... That it made that bit where Sad Guru said, "Give me three years of your of your life where you don't ask what about me, and we can really change the world." Selflessness. There you go. Um, so yeah, the soil the soil project where um, Sad Guru is uh, encouraging farmers to grow trees is uh, having a real impact. Jahid Hussein said, "Wonderful, very overwhelming to hear about this. Thank you, at Russell Brand, for the collaboration." Now that's uh, that's the comments on that episode. Annie Lennox coming up in a moment. But what about uh, some of my personal promo? Do you listen to all my YouTube channels? Do you want to come on? I'm doing another. Uh, I'm doing one of those things. I'm doing a. I'm doing a Zoom call <laughs> where it'll be five quid. I'm doing a Zoom call. It'll be five quid. All the money will go to, I think, we, I mean, look, I don't want to go into it too much, but I think it's a children's hospice in Slough. So, I mean, can you think of a more valid cause than that? It's pretty hard to. We'll be doing it next week. The information will be on russellbrand.com and we'll probably, if you're on my mailing list, you'll get it. So if you're not on my mailing list, sign up to it. Go to russellbrand.com, sign up to the mailing list where you can also leave a question if you want for our new Ask Me Anything episodes where you can ask me anything you like, anything at all. Can't they, Jen? Yeah, well, nice things. You can, they can ask not nice things. It's just we probably won't include that because who wants you to wouldn't be asked hear it. a not nice thing? It wouldn't pass the filter. It wouldn't pass the filter. I'd go, that's not nice. Well, we wouldn't get that far. You wouldn't even get that far. We'd you wouldn't even show me that. You'd weed that me. out. Only show me things. I want to be like a royal that just only ever encounters beauty. Yeah. No, but truth is true beauty. So, you know. But you can't have... Like, the fact is, is other people's negativity is their own unconscious problem anyway. And I know that. So I don't need to learn any more about that. And what about positivity? I like that. Is that some sort of manifestation? That's divine truth. That's love. Is love it? is the ultimate answer. <laughs> love is the ultimate answer. Love is the ultimate energy. <laughs> what if they're trying learned... to manipulate you with love? Oh, the dirty devil. <laughs> Oh, that's not really love. Is it really love? Well done, Demaya. So we can oh, have so negative smart. Posi- 24 positivity. 24 years old. Hmm? Can you have negative positivity? 
it wouldn't be positivity anymore because it's now manipulation. <laughs> it's been recategorized. And what does it say in Interstellar? You've I don't studied know. it. We had Matthew McConaughey, know, great guest, great guy. <laughs> he says that love is an interdimensional force that transcends space and time. Why aren't you listening? Why won't you listen it? Right. So uh, have a, I hope you've enjoyed that bit of promo. Now listen to Annie Lennox, who I must say is wonderful, and I hope to become friends with her. I'm planning to go around her house. Yeah, you said that. If she invites me. <laughs> well, you invited yourself. Did I say that on the yeah, podcast? Yeah, I'm coming around your house, house and I'm going to snoop around and I want to find out what's behind that cushion. <laughs> yeah, because I could see it in the background. <laughs> I could see a cushion and I would love to have known what was behind it. And that was around that white corner of that white brickwork she had. The rest of the house. That's how it is, isn't it? The Eurythmics. Okay, well, let's have a listen to Annie Lennox. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Annie, thank you so much for joining me on Under the Skin. Thank you for having me. I'm so, I'm just delighted. I've got to kind of calm, I keep saying calm down, calm down, because this is really, I wanted to talk to you, you know. How come? I've had conversations with you for a long, long time. Really, honestly, well, this is so flattering to me. I'm not trying to be flattering. I just, um, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, you know, when you're a public person and you're a communicator, you send out your messaging, your imagery, your thoughts, your words, your creativity to the world. And you don't know who's hearing you. No. Listening to you. And you don't know what effect you're having on them. And funnily enough, whenever I meet people that sort of tell me that the music that I've made or the music that Dave and I made has had a profound effect on them, it's too much to take. It's a bit, you know, it's wonderful. It's flattering, but it's, um, it's, too, it's, it's almost too much. And it's almost like, uh, you know, it's very deep and I can't kind of, take that responsibility, if that makes any sense to you. In a way, I suppose it does, because I've, I've spoken to a lot of people that have been in, you know, comparable positions, at least to yours, that have said that in a way, in a way, what people do with the image of you and the, and the artifacts that you create, in a sense, you can't really be responsible for it sometimes people have like a negative reaction i'm speaking from personal experience or sometimes you know a really positive one and in a way it's odd isn't it becoming like you said at the beginning uh, there annie becoming almost detached and separate from yourself i remember when i first became a kind of recognizable person i remember how excited i was when i heard that people like comics and musicians that i had heard of and admired like watched the sort of show I, shows I used to do on channel four late at night around the big brother and stuff it was sort of overwhelming because it felt like things were bleeding into my life and when I used to be able to go to the football club that I'd supported my whole life and then I got different treatment and was able to meet the players and all of these things it just it seemed like it sort of it cracked open something and uh, I, what about when you first were in the public eye and 
and with with the Eurythmics and was like hugely famous and successful. How did that did that disrupt your psyche to to go into those places? No, it's an interesting question because actually, to be uh, truthful, uh, we were already in the public eye for a few years before that because Dave and I were part of another band, and I look on that those few years before Eurythmics were the rehearsal years. They were the time to make all the mistakes, do everything kind of wrong, have all the experiences. You know, we played in bars and clubs and theatres and universities. And we, 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 we did, we, we really earned the t-shirt and it was hardcore, hardcore. How do you mean? Because, you know, we had nothing. And right from the very start, when we very first had a chance to sign a record contract, I mean, the whole story is so crazy and so mad, and I have so many stories. <laughs> They're so, like, you, you couldn't make them up. But we anyway, we got this record contract, crazy, and we started to kind of get into creating a band. And then within a, a few months, we were already in litigation with the record company. We were in this crazy fight where they were saying, well, we want Annie to be the front person and we want you to do something different. We, di we didn't want you to be this. And we, we, we had already sort of decided we were going in, in another direction. And we were like, no, we're, we're not doing what you want. We were Is this with the tourists or with the, yeah, the, the tourists? So anyway, cut a long story short. With the tourists, we made three albums already. And had all the, you know, we toured with Roxy Music even. That was the sort of pinnacle of our success. Wow. You know, and we had a bit of a hit with a cover version of Dusty Springfield's Only Want to Be With You, which was a kind of parody, supposed to be. But I learned from that that it's difficult to put parody across for people to really understand. Because, you, you know, that's sometimes tricky. I mean, as a comedian, people expect you to, to, to be parody. But when you're, gen when you're genuine or whatever, it's, it's complicated, isn't it, messaging? Anyway, so anyway, I got used to it. And I remember, uh, yes, used to people performing, people looking at you, having to deal with audiences, you know, having to deal with people sort of like, prove it and, and, and mm -hmm. glasses being thrown around and violence and crazy stuff, because this is all in the 70s in the punk era. It was tough. That was tough. In the vans, you know, driving in the snow at night, the windshield wipers going like this, and you're like, are we, are we, where are we? Where are we? Are we going? Are we anywhere near? It's three in the morning. Wow, we really earned our stripes. You know, and I remember like being in Crouch End, because Crouch End was the center of the world, North, Land North London. And uh, I was in Crouch End High Street, and I felt the sense of people doing a double take. And then it felt like the whole street was kind of doing a double take. And I thought, ooh, ooh, this feels different. And that was before Eurythmics. Now, Eurythmics, I'm sorry I'm going on a bit quickly, but Eurythmics, we had a number one hit all of a sudden, really, after that with Sweet Dreams. I was in a hotel room in Japan and they had, it was, um, no, I wasn't in Japan. I was, <laughs> I was in Los Angeles. Oh. 
there's a big mix-up going on in there. <laughs> it's the opposite side of the world, Annie. The geography's... Well, I was in LA. <laughs> there was an ocean away. Oh, it's just a, just a small pond. And anyway, so the window had that kind of rice paper, you know, like that kind of, um, that lighting, the diffused lighting that came through. And it was, yeah, it was in San Francisco. Sorry, I get so mixed up. This is hilarious. It's a good job you weren't doing a travel program. <laughs> Here I am, live from Bahamas. Sorry, I'm in Brixton. No, hold on. Kent. It's a swirling mass of memory. What is memory, Russell? We've got to talk about that. I have to talk about memory with you before we get to the end of our time. But anyway, I was, okay. I was in San Francisco in this hotel room, in a Japanese-style room with the light coming through. And it's the first time I'd been in San Francisco, and I knew, obviously, about earthquakes. And it felt everything I was thinking was earthquakes. There's going to be an earthquake any minute now. And I'm lying in the bed and get a phone call, and they say, you're number one. Your record's gone to number one in the United States. And it suddenly felt like... There was going to be an earthquake. There was, you know, everything felt so fragile. And all the walls around me felt like, and that door that, you know, when you're, when you're working and you're trying to open that great big door, <laughs> open sesame. Mm. And you kind of, all of a sudden, it's like, everything's changed. Mm. Wow. It's, it, there, there is no protection. Everything's open. And it took me a while to adjust to that. It took me, it's been part of the process of adjusting to going out in the street and everybody knowing who you are. And, oh God, trying to deal with that and trying to be a person that goes to the supermarket, that walks in the pavement, that goes to a cafe or a restaurant, is still sitting there just being normal because I'm a normal human being, you know? How curious. Um, when you describe that moment of the sort of the tectonic plates of your reality shifting as a result of the uh, ascent of your um, first, uh, you know, sort of globally successful record, uh, it made me think that whenever you're you it made me wonder it made me curious about what your relationship with your gift has been i think of the voice and people that are sort of gifted singers that it's a kind of out of body ability where is the voice it's a ghost in the body it's a vibration it's not actually in the body there is no sort of you know that, that where is it what is it this thing and you have that sort of transcendent uh quality to your singing when did you first experience it and when did you first allow yourself to sort of fantasize that it might sort of take you on that kind of journey and then what was it like when you feel as you say those doors opening and uh, uh, the, that, that world opening up f with all of its uh, challenges yeah I, I, I often think about this like the emergence of a voice what it is and I have to go back to being an only child. And I think you're an only child. You, I say, I'm still an only child. Are you still an only child? I am, I am. There can be only one. Strange. It's, um, well, I, I'm sure that there must be some parallels in our experience of the singularity 
um, and you feel a sense of singularity and you, you, you spend long periods of time alone. And in that time, there is a sense of loneliness and isolation and kind of needing to actually access some kind of muse within you. And I had a singing voice for as long back as I can remember. My mother told me that I used to sing myself to sleep. Um, and I, I just can't remember not singing. You know, as a little girl, uh, spending periods of time alone in the countryside with my grandparents, I would, go, I would go outside to play and I would actually sing and sing and make up, you know, I'd be in a musical, I'd be dancing. There were, there were places where I could, you know, just, I don't know, I was so responsive to music. Music was always there. And I sang in choirs. It was a local music center. I was a working class, from a working class background. And I got into a posh school when I was very, very young. I passed a test and, they, and I got into the school and it was in the West, you know, West end of town with the fancy big building, very intimidating. I had to wear a uniform. And uh, they, they, they recognized that I had a musical, musicality, let's say. And I started music lessons, piano lessons when I was seven with an wow. old fashioned strict piano teacher. It's like something from Roald Dahl. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, memory. Also, we've got to talk about memory because it's, that's the thing. It's memory is like the narrative of your life, how you come into being, how this gift comes to you and how on earth, I mean, I know about a little bit from listening to you that you've talked about discovering that when you performed in a school play, people reacted and it felt like you knew where your direction was, right? Yeah, that's right. I, I, I did, Annie. I felt like, uh, oh, this is sort of uh, simultaneously it's purpose, power, gift, transcendence, embodiment. And you don't really have the vocabulary or the framework to understand it. But where there was uncertainty, there is a kind of certainty. And I was thinking that when you've experienced moments such as the one you described there about like, you know, in, in sort of commercial terms and to a degree artistic terms because of, you know, popularity surely means something of experiencing a number one record that it kind of must be like oh wow that thing it's happened it's actually happened and what i remember is that from being very sort of like from doing that f the first time i performed feeling like oh right i'm not worthless i've got this thing i knew i had something and then suddenly it was weaponized and engaged um to the point where you know it was like 15 years until it even became meaningfully monetizable pr probably because of the mental health and drug addiction issues that were sort of accompanying it and how and, you know, it, it does. There is a, a kind of uh, uh, mythic truth to it that the gift comes from the wound and the fulfillment of the gift is a kind of further wounding, a further separation. It, it feels like the gift is going to bring you home, but it takes you further away from home than you could ever imagine being. It's 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 incredible to hear you speak in these terms. And that is really one of the reasons why I enjoy listening to you, your program, because 
it, get, it has emotional intelligence and it has such depth and it, you are able to articulate uh, aspects of life experience that we don't often get to share, we don't get to discuss. I mean, you'll know this well, uh, that process of exposure that we've just touched on. When you go to a radio station or a TV show and it's eight o'clock in the morning and you have to be on and there's bright lights and you come on and you sit there and there's somebody who's already got the slot to speak to you but their eyes are shifting and you're nervous because it's a live broadcast and you're not as experienced maybe as you should, could be or should be. And they're looking at you and the whole situation is bizarre and you get that impulse to just run away. <laughs> what would happen if I ran away? It's like when you stand on the edge, right? When the, the tube train is coming and you think, whoa, what if I just like jumped in front of the train? You, you know that those impulses, balconies. And so you're in a live broadcast and it's so art artificial. One of my uh, mentors said, sorry to interrupt you, dear Annie. One of my mentors said, never trust anyone that doesn't have those, that doesn't admit to those impulses because it shows that you're in touch with your shadow. If like, if someone gives you a baby and somewhere on your mind you think, I could just fucking throw this baby. <laughs> like if it, if it's like, it means that, that you're not, if you can't access that in yourself, then it one day it may very well bite you. I speak to a lot of friends that have been through the entertainment industry, which is obviously it's you know changing as all things are. And I must say it put it makes me shudder, Annie, to think about sort of turning up on those couches at eight a.m. in those lurid lights to essentially to promote some artifact. And and like for me now, uh, like I suppose what my life has become about is a sort of an aligning where I think like I'm only going to do things if I can make sense of them. And even when I do sort of projects like collaborative projects shall we say that um are artistically valid i still feel i don't like being taken out of control of my life i'm still very much like i was when i was a little boy really of just like just leave me alone and <laughs> let me get on with what i'm doing and it breaks my heart to think of you having to even via zoom having to go on to i don't know good morning britain or good morning anywhere and you know tell them why your record's good you know my experiences are so crazy, so surreal. I mean, um, you couldn't, like I said earlier, you couldn't make it up. And the thing is that sometimes you have to have, you always have to have the sense of composure, the preparation for performance. And you'll know, I mean, well, I say you'll know this, but we've been, you and I have been through something together, which is waiting on the side, waiting. Waiting, waiting all day actually, because the show that you're about to do is on at nine o'clock. And let's say it's a concert. For, for me, I've done hundreds and hundreds of, maybe thousands, I think, of performances. And each one, back in the day, I would be absolutely terrified. I had an issue with stage fright. And it built to such a point that I, I always thought I'm going to have a panic attack on stage. Mm. Something, it, it would just, it just built. It was just so, it was, it was too much. But that thing of preparation, 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 then waiting, then waiting. I would be like a fighter waiting to go onto the ring because I'm feeling this pressure. It's all on you. You are the apex of the triangle. You know, there's, people are behind you. 
but you are the voice. You are the one that is facing it, out, outward facing. And there could be 10, 20, 50,000, who knows how many people there. And you have to kind of overcome this, this feeling of the schism within you, which is like, okay, I know what I have to do. I'm not going to forget the words. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. You know, nothing's going to go wrong. I'm like, I'm, I mean, in everything that could possibly go wrong, I've experienced it, you know, like coming on and there's no mic or it's going. And there's like a live broadcast on radio and everything has clunked to a stop. <laughs> it's like those nightmares that keep you, you know, those ones. It's Spinal Tap, you know, <laughs> backstage, rock and roll. <laughs> That's the, the truth. I suppose the reason that um, performance occurs so frequently in people's nightmares and as Jerry Seinfeld famously says that, you know, most people are more afraid of public speaking than they are of death. And so most people, if they were at a funeral, they'd rather be in the casket than doing the eulogy. Jerry Seinfeld's joke um, like that, that in a way, when you're in that performance space, you ha- are sort of it's a very heightened place to be at and it does make me respect people that are performers that can that can handle it that can handle going into that space and the only way like i recognize that fear there were so many times when doing shows particularly when i was doing things i didn't feel like i was in control of like hosting big award shows and things where I felt like, I just don't want to do this. This is mental. And in a sense, there was a kind of authenticity to that. And particularly when you sort of talk about like the having to go on other people's shows, because we know that there are marketing and commercial imperatives that in a sense determine what these things are like. And the only way that I'm finding of managing it even now, Annie, is to try to align with a purpose that I can stand to live with like that i'm only going to do things in service of what i really believe in and that could be as simple as simple and as ordinary as i've got a wife and children so i've got financial obligations or it could be as you know esoteric as i think there is an opportunity for us to reach people and convey sublime truths that will help them to overcome the imprisonment of the ordinary this is so beautiful because i think you know, communication evolves, doesn't it? It evolves and evolves and evolves. Technology facilitates things. And the more things become the norm, for example, health food shops were looked on in provincial towns as being like really odd, oddball, hippie, you know, porridge and uh, Birkenstock kind of whatever. And now... Health food shops, well, of course, now we're into another normal where everything's shut down more or less. Well, he, it is here. Where are um, you? I'm in Los, I'm in Los Angeles. I'm oh, in Los amazing. A- oh, yes. Strangely enough, here I end up in Los Angeles. But, um, yeah, it's, um, what was I saying? You were saying about how, like, health food shops and all of that. How things that have been fringe evolve curiously into being mainstream and what you're doing i think is uh, at the cutting edge of the dialogue that is has to happen eventually we have to talk with 
a sense of emotional intelligence with authenticity because eventually there are so many things that we must face as human beings in this modern world where we are so disconnected, we are so isolated, we are so traumatized actually, and we don't have meaning, we don't have ritual. We threw the baby out with the bathwater when it came, comes to the good stuff from the past, in my view. I feel there were many good things that have been tossed out by modernity and replaced by things that don't have much value. So I have to thank you for your journey. Uh, it's very helpful to me and to the people that listen to you, that get you and are stimulated and comforted actually by the dialogues that are exchanged on your program. And you've gone, you've gone deeper, 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 haven't you? I mean, from being a sharp, sharp commentator, uh, comedic entity. You've done so many things as a broadcaster and communicator. And you've gone through, and I know you reference your battle with addiction very often. And it's grounding, too, because it makes you a person that has had to to struggle and go through tremendous uh, demons and turmoil and difficulty. Anna, you're so beautiful to say that to me. For someone uh, with a kind of achievement, success and evident ability and, and ongoing grace and talent, uh, to say something like that to me is very, very, I feel really seen and valued. Thank you very much. That's really very kind of you to say so. And it's been born really uh, this um, expedition of absolute necessity is in a sense mobilized by the same selfishness that has set me off in a sense self-preservation of who, who am I how am I going to be in this world um, and and each point of the journey discovering that the things that I'm acquiring are redundant you know so excuse me something just came on the screen like um so like really what I've um really all that's been all that's left for me I, 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 on a daily basis is how do I convene and commune with what is sacred now uh, but for me sacredness is not something that is framed by a particular circumstance or defined by a particular ritual uh, it uh, in fact the omnipresence of the sacred is a necessity for me i need to find what is sacred in my relationships with the people that i work with in the conversation that we're having now in the way that i treat my family and my children and the challenge of course is that i'm an animal as well and like as an animal i want to meet my biological needs and not only is that i'm an animal that lives in a culture that has sort of augmented the in a sense some of the darkest aspects of our animal nature greed selfishness if you l look at the sort of etymology of many of our social systems they they of course have all passed through human consciousness they are a result of human thinking and therefore are the fruit of, of these aspects of humanity that, that i'm discussing now whether it's capitalism and greed commercialism and uh, and uh, vanity and lust all of these things they've they they have got the march on us you know these are these ideas are being propagated and sold continually you like a space like instagram 
is not a neutral space. That is a corporate space. It is corporately owned and it has a corporate agenda. Even like the, the sort of great, um, I don't know, like capitalism presents itself as the non-ideological ideology. The market decides, utility decides, what people want decides. But this is the ultimate ideology. Um, it covers the entire globe. It's impossible to see beyond its horizons. And whenever you talk about trying to do things differently, people say immediately, oh, what do you want then? Communism, Maoist, China, as if like those are the two options available. And I think that, that sort of, it seems to me that you have always been in touch with something that's very sacred, um, physicalized through your voice and where that voice will just take you whether you want it to or not. It's going to put you in places and relationships and situations and, and present you with tests. And it seems that like me, you have that curiosity to see, like, is there some way that I can serve this? I'm minded of the writer James Hillman, who if you've not read, you, you should read. He talks about, uh, he opposes uh, jo Josephine Baker and Judy Garland beautifully and says that um, Josephine Baker was able to like uh, find a way when she went past her middle years of recognizing oh, okay my life's about something else now and she as my understanding from James Hillman is she established dance schools in Paris and worked with kids and all this stuff whereas Judy Garland was always somewhere over the rainbow and why that song he, he argues Hillman argues was such a successful is because it epitomized her and it epitomized something ethereal unknowable non-physical Judy Garland rootless rootless you know and I think the challenge for those of us that have known what it is to have the kind of power that comes from standing, you know, in your case, in front of stadiums and having everybody look at you and having the kind of attention that, that people now won't even really know because it's not the 80s anymore and having a number one record doesn't mean what it meant then. Like, to, to try and be a human being and have those experiences is not easy. No, that's absolutely, oh my goodness. You really said so many things that I uh, resonate with there. And, uh, and right at the start of our conversation, uh, where we, we touched on fame and, and perception and projection. Uh, yes, I mean, I was always aware that whatever I've done, it's, it's a separate thing to who I am, as you know, like you know this, I'm someone else, <laughs> I'm not living in the 80s. And I'm so aware of that. And everything I've done, always my expression, has been about change, has been about the passage of time. You'll, if you look into the lyrics, as I sometimes look back on the songs, you know, and the lyrical content. And like, or recently at the beginning of this pandemic, I went in, into the sort of back catalogue, because I was thinking, wow, you know, what did, what, what did we actually, what did I write about? What was it? And I realised that it was so resonant with the times that we're in now, because everything is about vulnerability, about uh, despair, oh. melancholy, uh, 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 the longing, the longing and the pain. There's so much pain in those lyrics. And I have always had a sense of melancholy ever since I was, again, the singing, the singing is the expression. And I don't know if the DNA and, you know, if, if I am Celtic, if there's anything that comes through the blood, any kind of bloodline, but, or the culture that I was brought up in, 
But that melancholy, you know, these Scottish kind of ballads and all of that, it's the expression of some kind of pain. And my God, I caught on to it very young. And I felt, I feel this pain. I feel this pain. And how do, in a way, um, there's a, music is a kind of crucible. It's alchemic. You distill things of pain into things of beauty. And you try to, it's transcendent again. And these words are just describing what's indescribable. And, and, as, you, and as we said earlier, you have critics in here and you have critics out there and you have people that think that it's you and they project on you and that you must be so special. And it's, it's not like that. It's, I don't buy it, you know, I don't buy into fame. Fame is uh, an illusion, a complete illusion and a dangerous one at that. And this is when we mentioned Josephine Baker, she managed to create something real, something tangible, something human, something of value. Whereas Judy Garland was destroyed. She was destroyed. And we can list a whole group of men and women who were destroyed, who, singers, performers. Yeah. Right. And they were already destroyed or potentially before they even stepped on stage, before their voice was ever recorded. Hey, how did you get through it? Like, you know, like you said, some of it was the preparation with the sort of the proto success of the, your earlier band, The Tourists. But how did you get through it when it was a sort of the white heat and collaborations with sort of global legends and making just the, some of the most uh, like era defining music? And I was just thinking now that something in the Eurythmics spoke to what you just talked about there, a kind of a sensitivity uh, but existing in this tech, this rapidly technologically advancing and commercialized time, it was like it was the sound of that collision. Thinking about it now, when you're just talking yeah, about Sweet it, Dreams, Sweet Dreams is a is the, the if you see the video, it's a surrealistic uh, is vision of everything that we've just touched on. Sweet Dreams is completely a statement about that, you know, and it's 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 a kind of mantra that has been sung and sung and sung for so many years. And I don't know if whether people fully understand the, the, the deeper meaning underneath it, because there is this deeper meaning under Sweet Dreams, you know. Yeah, I was just thinking about it now. It's an amazing, amazing song. How did you not go crazy? And, or did you a little bit? Uh, well, my God. Listen, I think by the skin of my teeth, by the skin of my teeth, there were so many opportunities when I could have completely lost the plot. And I, I, I teetered on the verge. I think I danced on a tightrope without even knowing how big the drop was. Yeah. I would find myself in situations that were so dark and so dangerous. And I'm just like, whoa, I didn't know this was going to happen. And how do I get out of this? I'm just lucky i was going to put some really bad word <laughs> the one that you've used so many times i've used all the time but i'm not going to use it but i was so lucky so lucky and i i think there's another thing though i am i am stoic i'm stoic i'm i have a scots working class <laughs> person inside me that just pff, is strong but I've been through a hell of a lot. And um, 
I just, I'm lucky. I, I'm lucky because drugs didn't get me. Alcohol didn't get me. Yeah. I danced on the edge. What, where did you feel like the danger was? Narcissism, uh, falling in love with maniacs. Where did you feel like the risk? <laughs> yes. The second one, yes. Second one. Uh, narcissism, not so much. I mean, I think I have vanity to full disclosure. I think everyone has a, an edge. It's a sort of spectrum. So I have a certain sense of vanity, but I checked myself out. Am I a narcissist? I don't think I am. I really don't think I am, but who knows? Narcissists don't know the narcissists, do they? I don't think they even ask someone like um, in that John Ronson book about psychopaths. He said, if you're reading this and you're thinking, oh, my God, I think I might be one. He says, you definitely aren't because they, they will just be like, well, this is interesting. So maybe it's the same with narcissists. I mean, I've done a lot of self-inquiry. When did that begin? When did that when did that begin? When did you what was your when did you recognize that it wouldn't work for you? Wow, good question, good question. When did it begin? Look, you go through childhood and there's a kind of innocence and naivety and then there's a moment of um, becoming an adolescent and it happened so quickly. I mean, I'm, I don't know, I'm, I want to know what your experience was and I know you've shared parts of your experience quite regularly on the programme, but my experience of becoming an adolescent from being a child was just like, vroom, like, now I'm an adolescent. And it wasn't, ooh, what can you say? Everything changed. It was like, again, it was a door opening. You step through, the doors close behind you. And I have, like you, a very, very strong sense of curiosity. And I was aware of the counter, so-called counterculture. And it was coming through music. The Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Kinks, uh, you know, all of it. The, the West Coast of America, San Francisco, you know, the hippie movement. I mean, I was born in 1954 and I come from such a provincial town. My father was extremely strict and he prevented me from, you know, going to the kind of dance halls that I wanted to go to. Well, I did eventually get to go to the dance halls. But it was that whole, you know, the music informed me of other ways of thinking, and I was on it. I wanted to hang out with the art school crowd, you know. I wanted to be with older people. The people around me seemed drab, seemed provincial, seemed like they weren't in touch. There was something else over the rainbow. <laughs> there was something else, and I was going to find it. And I always looked for the tribe, you know. And Dave, when I finally met somebody that understood, I felt, me, it was Dave. It was him. <laughs> did, it, did you meet through music? Did he know that you could sing when you met? What happened? Yeah. Well, it, oh, God. Again, so many. I feel like an old salty dog, right? an old sailor that's got all these tales of the, pa the past, ancient antiquity in Camden Town, living in a bedsit. Wow. Living in a bedsit. That's all right. The Arlington House. I was as a waitress. I was working as a waitress. Camden Lock was a different place then. You know, Camden Lock was just starting up. 
And uh, I had a little, there was a wonderful girl that I had become friends with and she had a stall in Camden Lock Market selling secondhand clothes, you know. And I loved secondhand clothes. I loved thrift stores. I was, I used to bring clothes down from Scotland that I found in thrift stores in suitcases and sell them in Camden Lock. You know, things I'd bought for pennies and I'd sell them for pounds. And I'd live on the money because I had, I was completely penniless. I mean, I had nothing. And I had to just kind of do what you had to do to get by. And I met Dave because I had a friend who had a, had a stall in Camden Lock Market and he knew Dave. And he knew that I was writing songs and, and I was looking, I didn't know what to do. I was, I thought I needed to find somebody to, I don't know, help me out. And anyway, I, I just, I think somebody had offered me a contract. Somebody had offered me a contract and I had this contract and I'm like, what do I do with this? And this friend of mine had a stall and he had, uh, he was selling records. It's great, isn't it? He was selling records. And um, I asked him about the contract. He said, my mate Dave, you should meet my mate Dave. He, he knows all about me, you know, music. Off to meet him. So um, I was working in the restaurant, the health food restaurant, and Dave and Paul, Paul Jacobs, came one night in West, West Hampstead to the restaurant to meet me. And they came in and the manager looked at them and, and he, he eyed them from across the room. He said, are they your friends? I was like, uh, well, no, no, I don't, <laughs> don't know because they were so... Oh, God almighty. Oh, this is like digging, now we're digging deep met Dave and Paul and it all kind of started from there. And, and we, we lived in Crouch End, which is further up north. And, you know, the whole culture, know I mean, it. The whole culture doesn't matter where you lived, there were drugs, mm. drugs, drugs, drugs. And then obviously with, with, I mean, I used to smoke a bit, but being a singer, couldn't stand it in the end. Mm -mm. You know, that feeling of waking up, like your mouth is like, tastes like an ashtray. That's what, that's what smoking feels like. Mouth feels like an ashtray. It's disgusting. Ugh. Yeah, you've got to have such a um, pure relationship, I would imagine, with breath. It is mental when you see like singers flinging stuff down their throats and into their faces that you know are going to make them deteriorate. So, okay, so you met in a kind of... Like, what's weird when I listen to, to you explaining like the meeting of you and Dave Stewart is it sounds like the the kind of the ordinary meetings of a million wannabes like all those people that are going to start a band and they're going to do this but of course most people don't go on to sell you know 83 million records or however many you subsequently sold so I know it's around that we actually did and it was it was such a struggle the whole thing I've always felt my fight in this life has been to keep some sense of integrity and some sense of authenticity, and I had to fight all the way through. Why, 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 Annie? What was what was the opponent to your authenticity, and what is trying to take away or challenge your authenticity? What do you think it is? It is people not people that you're working with, not necessarily having your best interest. People that you're working with, not understanding that 
going into the detail is incredibly important. The consistency of the quality of uh, production of visual content of oral musical content has to be at the highest level. And, you know, it's, it's people not even sometimes meaning to, but just not coming up to the people that you work with, not coming up to standard and it's going to go out and you have to stop that, you, have to, you know, or, or people just having bad intention that also happened. People trying to take advantage People lying. Do you mean economically or sexually or how? Because I, I, I'm sort of... not sexually. That was kind of that was not really the issue. I mean, it was um, artistically, economically, just oh, in every way. I'd, I mean, like I say, the stories are all like little, like oh, the experiences. And the stories are mythological in so many ways. Yeah. Because like when you're in the music business, like at least the period of your career that we're discussing now, this is in a sense pre-sanitization. Even up to the 90s, I've got friends that were sort of peeking out in that time. And like they was, it was still like big bowls of coke and pay, paid for sex workers and chaos and all of that. Now my understanding is at least like that that kind of thing's calmed right down and it's like there's a lot more focus on the top line and stuff. Um, and but I know like from speaking to friends of mine that are musical artists that there is a sense that you're surrounded by a kind of a mendacity and exploitation that you're being commodified that there is no real regard for what you're doing. And again, I, I don't think that's discreet from what we were talking about earlier. In in terms of sort of basic economics that you are a commodity these are the things you know yeah the things that you're satirizing yes yes but it became you know what i think oh, oh yeah the biggest fight the biggest fight is the corporate world the corporate world that wants to obviously the corporate world that commodifies you and wants to come in and is there because you know you have signed a contract with them and it is about, they are, there's a mediocrity in the corporate world. There, it's, uh, it's a big beast. And you are just a little biscuit in the line of the factory, you know. And that was, that. you know, to be honest, for me, I, as a woman, to be frank, you know, it was very much a, a boys club. And I was kind of an, an uh, adjunct on the end and the outside of that boys club because I'm not a boy. I was a, a lad. I could hang out with guys and be, it's great. I love men. I love being men's company. I'm more comfortable in a way with men than I am with women. And that might sound really strange, but I'm used to being with men, obviously. And um, those big bowls of Coke that you're talking about, I didn't, I knew that there were big bowls of Coke somewhere, but I didn't see them because I wasn't taking it. It was so funny. I have a story for you. Once upon a time, I was in the recording studio. There was a bunch of people all around and there was Coke available. And somebody said, hey, why don't I have a line of Coke? And I'm like, well, I don't know if I want to. And I said, no, 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 have it, have it, you have it, have it. And I'm going, all right, all right, I'll have it. So I did, I took a line of Coke and it was, it was not, good it wasn't good it came, went all down my nose I was supposed to sing I didn't like it I didn't like the the dryness and 
that thing and I didn't like that. I didn't like the feeling of coke. And then everybody around me, they were all laughing because they said, we all take it. And I said, what, and you take it? Regularly, like really regularly. And I, I was, it's pathetic, really. I was just, I knew everybody so well. I didn't know that everybody was taking coke right there. And that was why everybody was so hyped up. <laughs> Everyone was really excited. For, they're really enjoying this demo. <laughs> it's going over really well. But in fact, everyone in the whole room is off their nut on drugs, Annie. You know, but it was all around me all the time. But I just, I don't know. I, I also think it was in the corporate world there was a lot of that too. And I think that was extremely dangerous as well. For those guys, it gets really nasty when it gets into that I don't know, that world of money and, oh, God. I mean, yeah, what can you say? It seems to me that you are a very pure person in some regard or like you have a, a sort of high fidelity, a sort of a faithfulness, a great regard for what you do as a, a artist and for the type of stories you tell. Um, you, is it that you are doing um, some work at the moment that's like based on that Virgil and stuff at the moment. Is that true that you're writing, like singing about Dido and like what? What is that? What is that you're up to? All right, so it's a beautiful story actually, because I have a classical background, and um, that I moved away from because I understood I couldn't become part of that world. I wasn't part of that world of classical music really, but I have all this classical part to me. So. I often say that I have a bit of a jukebox in my head because, you know, when I hear music, I'm like a sponge, it goes in and I remember it. So one day, 10 years ago, I was recording uh, an album called A Christmas Cornucopia. And we were recording these beautiful songs and carols that I'd learned as a child. Yay! There it is. <laughs> it's just like that. Just like that. Just like that. There it is. Oh, but I promise you, I haven't, I genuinely haven't come on the show to promote it. Don't but, be you know, worried. Might as well, might as well. But anyway, so we were, we were recording it 10 years ago and I, I have often the song, you know how you go in the shower and a song comes in your head and you've got that earworm and it's going on. So I, for some reason, I had this idea like Dido's Lament. You know, it's so beautiful. And I was singing it in my mind. And so I came into the studio and I said, oof, could we record this? I want to try it out. And Mike Stevens, who I work with, said, yeah, absolutely, go for it. So that day I started sort of approaching it. And we recorded it, I think, in a day. It's crazy, you know, to think of doing that. And then... Wow. Yeah, it's, it was recorded very quickly. It just it was one of those things that just kind of came out, like, woof, something's come like that. And, and I think that's, I was thinking about that, and I think it is like channeling a little bit. I don't mm. really know. I feel it's like channeling something. And anyway, so we made the recording and forgot about it. <laughs> just... Made the album, Dino's Lament was there, forgot, forgot I'd done it. 10 years later, 2020, before, before this pandemic started, you know, the record company said they would like to re-release 
uh, it was the 10th anniversary of a Christmas cornucopia and they'd like to re-release it. And I'm like, yes, let's do that. That's beautiful. Let's go for it. Said, and I thought, let's do, let's put something extra so we can make it, we can make it different from the original. Mike called me up and he said, I found this recording that we did of Dido's Lament. I said, what? I couldn't remember. And then I, he said, I'll send you the link of the recording. So I listened to it and I was like, wow, this is, this is strong. And it ended up that we've put it on the album. And I couldn't, it was a kind of synchronistic thing, you know. And it's a funny word, synchronicity, because people apply it to all manner of things and they kind of like to say, oh, this is so synchronistic. But in a way, this is a beautiful synchronicity that, you know, he found it, I'd forgotten about it. They'd asked to make the record, put it out again, boom, we put it on. I couldn't really make the connection between Dido's Lament and the other songs. I was kind of confused. I was thinking, but there's no connection. And then one day it really hit me hard because I thought, 2020 has been unprecedented. People have died in their thousands. We have never experienced a collective outpouring of grief that we, we are all in a kind of sense of um, collective, I think, uh, despair, anxiety, um, turmoil, in, mm. in, in turmoil. There's so much has, is happening now. We, we don't know. We are full of fear and death. In the Western world, that has been hidden away, because we've since the Victorians, you know, the Victorians had their ritual for death. Death was all around them. Children were dying, babies were dying, women were dying, and their youth, men, women, everybody. You didn't get to live, you know, until maybe after forty-eight years old. That might have been the <laughs> life expectancy maximum, like in the so-called third world. You know, forty-eight years old poverty does that. Poverty kills you. So Dido's Lament is on the record and I feel that it can serve, I really genuinely feel it can serve people as a moment of uh, grief and um, mourning. Mm. And, and strangely enough, this year at the Poppy Day, you know, at the Cenotaph earlier this year, the, the band, the military band, actually played a version of Dido's Lament. And, I, and my, my assistant was watching it on the television and she, she filmed it. She went, oh my God, she filmed it and sent it to me. I didn't know that, you know, it was used in that kind of mournful way. So I feel it, it is very appropriate, that, so, that song. I, it also is a sense for me that the world, the planet, is perilously close to, and I hate to say it, um, it's difficult to say, um, we are really close to our, our, our human, human beings have destroyed the planet and we're continually destroying it the Amazon rainforests, all the great forests of the world are being burnt down. And the great species of the world, the, the leopard, the tiger, the rhinoceros, the elephant, all of them, the 
the polar bear, the ice caps melting, the glaciers, all of it, all of it. The things that we have taken for granted are coming very close to not existing and um, rapidly, exponentially. Um, and we are in denial of it. We are in denial and we can't really speak of it because it's too much. I read something earlier today. I'm reading this book by uh, David Hawkins, who's writes about, he sort of founded this uh, kinesiology, you know, where you can test, uh, yeah, that thing, right? The pushing down the arm is what Annie's doing for those of you that are not watching this. And <clears throat> he was saying that when crisis comes, the ability to, and he's talking about personal crisis, the ability to observe it, to observe fear and to stay with the feeling and not with the thoughts, not with the projection and the limitless pirouations that can come from thought, to allow the body where the pain is held to metabolize it and feel it. He says is the only way we can, we can process it. Our tendency, he says, is either to suppress, repress, express, or escape. And he says repression is when you do it. Uh, if you're suppression is where you do it. Um, someone does it to you, and you're unconscious. Repression is when you do it yourself. And expression, like you kind of inhabit the grief, even though sort of sharing can be like a good thing. And escape is obviously various ways of not owning your emotion. But he said that. That, that there can be, he said, that after a period of crisis of dealing with intense fear and grief, that there can be a kind of mystical experience that follows it, that it can precipitate a kind of moment of transition. And in a way, we all know what the reasons are that, you know, the invisible systems, the faith-based ideas that lead us to treat limited resources as if they are not limited, to, that lead us to prioritize the imaginary world of finance, the constructed conceptual world of finance above the real world of beings and material. That, that in a sense, it can be altered through epiphany, through transition. Perhaps the reason that myth highlights the significance of awakening, epiphany, transition, transcendence, is because this is what will be required, we understand. We understand that there must be an awakening. And it can feel uh, hopeless sometimes, but I am minded that it's, that when these transformations take place, if they take place we're talking about changes that take place in the uh, on the level of consciousness. All that's required is for us to change. Like when the reason that I um, hearken back a lot to addiction is because addiction is about personal revelation and personal awakening. That a person that's taking drugs all the time, becoming a person that never takes drugs, is an enormous transformation. A person that's obsessed with you know, sort of uh, pornography, sex or money or negative relationships or food or whatever it is to be able to sort of to, to have the sort of critical distance to be able to observe that pattern and that behavior and to let go of it 
on an individual level is so potent. I think it's a sort of a, it's a religious idea, really. It's a kind of a religious awakening taking place on an individual level. And and, and I recognise that it needs to take place on an individual and collective level. But And I don't underestimate the magnitude of the task. But neither do I personally feel daunted by it. I never have done. In all of the sort of personal, like the transmutations of my own little life and my own little career, I have maintained that there is something trying to realize itself through us. And I think we all have a personal experience of it. You've described it very eloquently in our conversation today, that you were aware that you had a gift, you were aware that it was precious, you were aware that it was somehow dangerous, that it had to be looked after, that you could be destroyed by it, or at least by the circumstances that the gift would take you into. And I think all of us have our own experience of that some of us are lucky enough to experience it so vividly through fame but what is fame really other than an amplification of the experience of knowing people and being judged and having like millions of people have an opinion about you and i think that where we are now in the world is a point where there are the communicative means for a significant number of people to simultaneously say we're stepping out we're stepping out of this system like, you know, and the reason the point that where it will be felt, I think, is when it becomes an economic decision, when it becomes about debt and tax. When people say I'm not paying taxes, I'm not returning debt. That's when systems collapse and change. In fact, the system has already collapsed many, many times, most recently in 2008. So I feel like we must not yield to the idea that there is not hope because that is the primary condition for there not being any hope is the belief that there isn't any and and I, and I know that you're a person that's you know I'm looking here at all of these achievements in your own life through activism the um the the circle your non-profit that's about um achieving equality for women and girls your foundation that helps people with HIV uh, in sort of African and in your native country and your uh, like you know peering with Nelson Mandela and the, the rally with uh, for the Gaza the Gaza war in 2009 so I know that this is that you've been involved in this stuff for a lot longer than I have so I'm certainly you know not being didactic activism which um, I must say uh, I met Anita Ruddick many years ago and uh, she was the founder of the body shop I remember do you remember Anita? Yeah, she seemed like a pretty powerful person. I never met her. She was really, I think you two would have got along brilliantly. And um, yeah, I had the good fortune to meet Anita a few years before she passed away. She died too young. She was 64 years old. And she was incredible, a, dy a dynamic force and a, a true activist. I mean, she, she, she showed up and it's Anita was a force of nature. Let's just put it like that. And we would meet each other occasionally. And um, she definitely is one of the catalysts for me when I when I actually saw what Anita was doing and was basically saying, "Get off the couch and become an activist. We all must be activists. And what is it to be an activist? Which is about engagement. Which is um." Is about response. It's it's non-governmental. You know, we have governments everywhere, but they very often are uh, blocks to accessing transformative change, which in South Africa was absolutely the case with HIV and AIDS, which was decimating the population. Three hundred thousand people died unnecessarily because the president uh, blocked people's access 
to life-saving medicine. And I, I, just re I just had an awakening again with, with Anita and uh, one of many people that have influenced me. And I, and I did have several meetings with Mandela and I was, it was curious to me because I, I was, you know, like everybody who ever met him was sim simply in awe of him and watched him as a statesman, watched him as a, as a post-president who was desperately trying to make change in his country after, after this struggle to end apartheid. Now he was trying to end the decimation of AIDS, a pan, another pandemic, you know, mm -hmm. and all these experiences, going with Comic Relief, for example, to visit projects where I saw women living in the most perilous circumstances of abject poverty, girls that were exposed to, to such brutalities, you know, um, people having to resort to sex work because that was the only option they had to feed their kids. And um, I understood then, you know, the, the vast discrepancy of Western wealth and um, what it is to live in circumstances that you just cannot even begin to imagine. It changed my paradigm. I thought I knew what poverty was. I thought I knew because, you know, generations, my generations, my grandparents, they lived in poverty. But it's not, it wasn't poverty like the poverty I've seen. And um, mm -hmm. it was, um, I don't know that you have personally witnessed that, but when you do, it, you, you, you're changed by it. You're changed by it. Yes, I did under similar circumstances, you know, briefly in uh, Uganda, I think. Like, and I just, like, it actually took, like, of it, what I felt, because it was under the auspices of a charitable venture, I felt like sort of a bit disingenuous because I, like, you know, it was for comic relief. And I remember going and thinking, oh my fucking God, this is too, nothing can be done about this. This is, we're fucked. <laughs> like, you know, like I, I found it very hard to toe the line of the organization because I felt like how can, and, and what was especially strange about it after going to this, um, rubbish dump where there were children foraging for things that they could sell and that it was run by warlords and the children were being raped i mean just every sort of detail about it was like another kind of oh geez oh bloody it was like i sort of short-circuited on the information and within a week i was like i remember like they, the kids particularly prized these bottle tops you know they were something that could be i don't know harvested and resold in some way and like and, and like for a while after that like you know i couldn't look at a bottle top without thinking oh fuck man you know back in my in sconced once more in privilege but within a week of going to that place i was in paris at a john galliano fashion show and i was like couldn't hold the two images in my head of being amidst this sort of admittedly beautiful decadence of paris and this incredible poverty on the same planet i remember writing about it at the time and saying it's like meeting someone that's being sort of destroyed by cancer but they're spending loads of money on lipstick and like their hair and looking fantastic but there's like weeping cancerous ulcers on their body like we are the it's one unit and we're a separated not now by you know communication or transportation but by ideology of just like sort of and my friend who comes on here kahindi andrews would say you know his rubric is very much one about race and racism and we just say there are just there are still strata uh, you know racial strata 
that were these people's lives, these children's lives in this case, are millions, millions and millions and millions of people living in abject poverty, millions of women and girls not getting access to education, being abused on a daily basis in South Africa, for example, rape is so commonplace. It is normal. I mean, one in four men, um, it is known that it is rape that is happening there. And it's just completely, rape is normalized. It's not, it's not unusual. And it is rape of children. And the violation is so unspeakable that I just go like, I mean, as I'm talking about it, I, I think I have to stop because it's beyond belief and it's ubiquitous. And so when we talk about feminism, you know, if we talk about feminism, to me, it means empowerment of women and girls who are living in abject uh, lack, who are living under the shadow of violence that is mm. unspeakable and in a, in, a, in a sort of dominant male culture that will not respect will not allow will not facilitate humanity consideration and you're right i mean the actual issue is so vast it is a sisyphusian task to even try to attempt and this is part of the the tension that i live with because on the one hand i am absolutely the most privileged i'm i'm in that rank you know i'm in that at that level where I am white and privileged and able to, you know, facilitate things and have access into material wealth and to protection, to everything, you know, to healthcare, to sanitation, to electricity, to houses, to everything. And I've come to understand what extreme poverty is. And it has, yeah, I guess it traumatized me, but. It, then it's like you're left with the question of like, what shall I do about it? What can I do about it? And that is where activism has come in for me. But it never feels like it's enough. And I'm, mm. you know, it's never enough. It's never well, enough. That's so difficult to deal with. Well, you know, these famous idioms, I suppose, with something as extreme and terrifying uh, as you have just described Annie I think we can only revert to idioms such as think global act local and it seems to me that a problem like that because you know you think that all right because a sort of a Christian idea is if you're like you're you must make the focus of your life the poor the poor like you know so if they if your life is essentially about yourself and your own comfort then you're living in an illusion you need to free yourself of that dedicate yourself to the service of the poor now i feel like okay i'm i'm really willing to throw off the sort of prison of privilege and comfort that has sort of nailed me to the, to my chair for too long and like and i'll i'm willing to serve but you know that the sort of the channel of charity is insufficient and in fact is part of the maintenance of those conditions it can't it's a political issue and it can only change 
by altering the infrastructure, which will, we would we wouldn't have to examine these issues for very long to uncover a global uh, a global infrastructure. I think that when you are, any question you ask of this complex and challenging world, anything that seems like it shouldn't be, and you ask, well, why is it that way? The answer will always come down to because it benefits the privileged for it to remain that way. So, like, until you can identify who benefits from things staying like this and working out how to apply pressure, which I suppose on a personal level is going to require sacrifice. You know, until you and I are willing to say, well, what are we willing to give up? Are we willing to give up money? Are we willing to give up time? Are we willing to give up comfort? And, you know, God, do I need a whole other lifetime before I'm willing to put aside the, you know, the central heating and the central adulation? You know, do I need another lifetime before I'm willing? I mean, the thing is, Everything is systemic, and as you say, yeah. it has to. Unless you have a system that is is willing to make the changes on a glo- on on a national level, on a global le- level, you know, unless politicians and businessmen and corporate interests put the brake on and stop, the, unless the warlords stop, unless the makers of uh, Killing machines and weaponry stop. I mean, there is. If you if you look at from the microcosm to the macrocosm, if you have an overview of the world, if you could see everything that was taking place systemically at every level, you the task of change, changing the world, seems impossible. <laughs> It seems impossible. So then you come back down. I'm just, I suppose what I'm describing here is my own kind of process of like, what do you do? What do you do? You know, how do you do it? Um, And I think I haven't really, to be honest, I haven't sorted it out. It's still like a big question mark. But I try in my own way. I try to use my platform. I try to be of value. I try to donate, I try to contribute. I try to find in my own life, in my own world, ways that I can be of benefit. But at the same time, in doing that, and I've been doing this for years and years and years, Mm. it can also kind of weigh on me in such a heavy way because the demand starts to become every day, every day, every day. And I can never... I can never do it. I am the little boy with the finger in the dam. I feel like that person. And so that thing called burnout of activists is something that I I really identify with because there isn't an end to it. Um, And one must put a kind of boundary around because it it does not benefit anyone if you get burnt out, you know? I suppose this is why most of the things I look at in my life now, I try to underwrite somewhat spiritually. And here I would look at the idea of dharma the kind of work that we can do that doesn't take from us but feeds and fuels us and i suppose that i feel that perhaps uh, perhaps a limitation of activism is precisely that it takes place within the in an arena in which it's somewhat doomed to fail because the terms have been established by the 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 dominant forces within that paradigm and i think that perhaps in a sense, we need to look at ways of um, 
that are subversive and but um, i'll astonish you annie i've not worked out yet how to dismantle the machinery of global capitalism and corruption across the world not yet it is huge but yet you know there are people that are described as social entrepreneurs they do exist and they have fantastic ideas they have the solutions they their solutions could be applied and are being applied to, you know, finding sources of clean water, finding ways that we can fish without absolutely destroying, you know, the, the supply of of everything. I mean, the the problem the, the problems are unlimited, and yet there are solutions. Yeah. What makes me crazy is that it seems like megalomaniac, psychotic individuals who have whose destiny seems to have taken them to the top where they are in positions of incredible power they have the hold on it all they have the hold and in their back pocket goes channeled money through corrupt sources from uh, relationships with corporate powers criminal powers Everything. This is what I'm talking about. Like, if you could see it all, really, what is really, really happening, it's um, overwhelming. And then you come back. I'm sorry, I'm I'm talking in a really circular way here. No, you're not. You're too, I, I, I think there's a great deal of clarity and truth in what you're saying. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the people that rise to the top are corrupt because they're systemically created. And when I spoke to Yanis Varoufakis about that, he sort of talked about people in positions within the eu when it, when briefly saritza looked like they'd thrown off the oppressive shackles of the bureaucracies that kept them indebted and and had um taken away their sovereign power and he said that when he spoke to people in positions of of authority he recognized the only power they had was the power of that role and that role only affords them certain uh, a limited spectrum of decisions so they have no you take that person out you replace it with another person it's inevitable the system is self-sustaining and so I suppose for us really the first thing that I feel I have to accept is the inability of any individual to meaningfully change it but collaboratively that there is a great great power so say sorry to interrupt you there I, I don't mean to but I'm just in this sort of chain of thought that because that, that in itself is a very paralyzing idea that there's nothing one can do. So then it's a sort of nihilistic think, thought. There's nothing I can do. Therefore, I'm going to just lie down and do nothing and just eat, eat myself and drink myself, drug myself to death, which is inevitable because we're all going to die. <laughs> or I will, make, I will make some purpose in my life even though I cannot solve it, it is insurmountable. But within my sphere of influence, I will be uh, an agent for transformative change for something that will make that day a better day, uh, that will have some positive effect. I don't know. I think it's as if I, I feel that an activist must go through this, must go through this process of seeing that it is impossible and yet at the same time. Necessary. Yeah, it's necessary. And it's a beautiful pledge. And uh, please, I don't I'm not uh, a nihilist and I don't think that there is no hope. I just 
I just don't think there's any hope within those systems. I think it's like a systemic overhaul, overthrow. It's quite a radical thing. Like that's in a sense, might the position I occupy is out as far as I can understand it outside of certainly the scope of ordinary politics I wouldn't sort of anything any process that's ultimately going to end up in parliamentary democracy or congressional democracy I think the results it produces have been demonstrated and it won't suddenly produce tangential results of radical change it will at best produce reform and when you're establishing the scale of the problem when you're talking about the continent of Africa and the degree of suffering that you know that you described there incremental change is insufficient what's required is an entirely different perspective but what i where i feel optimistic annie is that individuals can at any point opt out if enough people feel like this is no longer enough for me this system of trinkets and commodity and comfort and distraction and apps is no longer enough to keep me spellbound that if it's enough people awaken if enough people think wow perhaps my life would feel more fulfilling if i stepped outside of the uh, of the framework i've been granted by the system that sees me as a consumer rather than an active citizen that's where i think that the hope lies and but i i think that in a sense annie that we uh, have to commit as you have just suggested to our uh, to pursuing our own individual potency and where we can collaborate with others and, and annie i have to uh, wrap up now because uh, it's dinner time in this country oh i know i, I was thinking about how you know, if, if, if it were ever possible, and I know it isn't, but I think we could talk. There are so many subjects I would love to talk about with you. I'm not proposing this at all, but... I would love to. I'll come round. Yeah. I'll, uh, as soon as I'm allowed in Los Angeles, I would come round that house. I'm in, very interested in that brickwork behind you. I really want to have a nose round behind that corner. I want to have a real good chat with you. Oh, it would be so really great. Investigate all your private business. Get stories about, about people that you're too discreet to say when it's being recorded and broadcast. The whole thing, Annie... A thorough investigation. Download it all. But just before we go, I have to say that um, talk with Satish, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love Satish. And I've, I've, been, I've been his friend, a friend of him, mm. many years. And actually, Satish embodies essentially my, um, my kind of aspiration, if you like. Uh, everything that he represents, everything resurgence stands for is really where I'm coming from. I'm not Buddhist. I'm not religious in any way. And, um, but I, I am a seeker. And uh, everything that Satish says is kind of my ideal. Yeah. If the world could be that place, that is what I would want it to be. But I know it, it probably can't. I think we just have to give the people with the right understanding of the the platform and position to make the necessary changes and i certainly would cite satish as an incredible elder he really has understood it and yeah he's been there with mine luther king and bertram russell and you know like he's passing on great wisdom beautiful so um just before you go i'm going to say thank you for your platform because you're you're a sublime influencer you may not know how all the people that you you reach my daughter is just abs listens to the show every every single one and she's 27 and she is just totally kind of like this is where it is this, these conversations are powerful and they're necessary if we didn't have them 
the life would be very kind of thin without them. So thank you. God, you're beautiful. I really think you're lovely. Thank you, Annie Lennox, for coming on this show and lighting up my life with your charm and your vivacity and your wisdom. And I hope your daughter enjoys this episode, even though it's got her mother on. And if she's anything like my young children, she'll simply refuse to listen on the on that basis alone. Quite right. Annie, you're so beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for coming on here. Annie, you're beautiful. Bye-bye, mate. Bye-bye, darling. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with Annie Lennox. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me, Russell Brand. Tweet me at Rusty Rockets. Go to my mailing list at russellbrand.com. Why don't you go back and listen to Satish Kumar, Yousef Cat stevens Michael Mead, some of the brilliant podcasts that are on this show, and keep checking my YouTube channel frantically, almost hourly. Set an alarm. Wake yourself up in the middle of the night. Do not rest for new spiritual videos. No, don't just check it when you can. There's no big urgency. You know the truth. Everything's within you. Under the Skin from Luminary.